Welcome everyone to another exciting podcast with B2B Marketing Perspectives. We've got a guest today that has such an extensive background from all sides. I'm going to let Nancy uh, introduce herself here in just a second. But Nancy, you've been a chief marketing officer. You are right now chief sales officer. You've been in sales. You've actually done the role of sales, sales enablement, product marketing. You've been at Forrester as an analyst. So you've been making recommendations to companies. You've been executing from a customer side, from within the company, all angles. So your perspective is very, very unique here. Is there anything you want to maybe add to that about your background and what you do uh, before we get into some of the questions we're going to cover today? Um, well, yeah, I have an interesting background. I was never a chief sales officer. I'll just be clear. I was a VP of sales, but I was never a chief sales officer. But um, I have had a, a variety of roles. I started um, doing technical support and customer service and just was a very, I'm very process oriented. Like I like process efficiency and like when I go to run errands, I only, I map out my errands. So I'm taking right turns only, you know, like I'm weird that way. <laughs> um, but I, I did that. And then I ended up doing customer service planning and then through a variety of reasons moved over to uh, industry marketing to launch a new um, launch into a new industry with, with the company I was working at at the time. Uh, from there, I um, decided to go into sales because they're making money. I'm like, oh, I could do that. I could make some money. So I did. And I was very successful um, at doing that. And I saved up enough money to go back to grad school full time. I had gotten a technical undergraduate degree in math and computer science. And so I wanted to go back and get the business degree. So I did that. And then I started a company with um, two partners. It was a um, customer service oriented company that supported uh, B2B supported internet uh, businesses. So providing chat support and, and voice support for people who are going onto websites. And this was in the year 1999. So it was really at the nascent part of the marketplace. And when the dot-com implosion happened, we ended up selling our company to um, one of our clients. And I moved over to one of the tech partners that we used in our company one of the technologies we used and I uh, was, was running sales. I was in sales management and uh, did that for a while and then moved over and ran our managed services business and the customer success team. Cause I had that experience before I built a company that was supporting those kind of businesses. And you know, this was all precursor to SaaS uh, businesses. And that was really fun. Um, we had a really good time doing that. And then uh, we decided to get out of that business, which was probably not a good, you know, somebody above my pay grade decided to get out of that business, which was a shame because the market shifted into that kind of business. Exactly. Um, but uh, so then I, I moved over and I did sales enablement and built a global sales enablement function at the time when we weren't really calling it sales enablement yet and supported both our direct and indirect um, channels. And then um, I did a short stint um, running an integration of a merger of two companies and running all the communications for that integration inside and out. Um, and then I went into product marketing, ran product marketing for a while. I, I'm really aging myself with how long my career has been. <laughs> and then uh, I went to another firm and I was a GM of a business unit, started my own company after that, 
ended up then going to four, to serious decisions and being an advisor in sales enablement and then over to Forrester and advising sales leaders and um, sales ops leaders. So yeah, it's been a very career. I'm incredibly curious all the time. So I'm always interested in the next thing. And I don't feel like my career maybe was as random as it sounds. I always leveraged whatever I had been doing to be successful in the next position. And, and so there was a natural right flow in my mind to my whole career. So it makes good sense, right? As you're you're doing one thing and then you're seeing what can happen in another area. And the the thing that's really interesting is that there are a lot of us, and I'm included in that as a, a chief marketing officer, that we've never had a sales background. Mm. Right? So we've continually throughout our career helped enable sales, but we've never done that function. And my point of view, at least, is that there's nothing that we do in marketing that isn't more important than enabling the sales right team. And so you've played on that role. You've been in one of the biggest research companies in the world in terms of supporting the B2B effort in terms of sales and marketing, go-to-market strategy. And you run the entire go-to-market strategy right now for Edgeo, RevOps and everything. So I'm going to ask you a question. We, I, before we started the recording here, I told you that you know we've written a, an ebook recently. There's why B2B CMOs fail so quickly. And they fail about twice the rate of CEOs twice as fast, and they have the shortest tenure of any of the C-suite roles. And you've been a chief strategy officer, right? chief marketing officer, you've been in sales and enablement, you've been in sales, you've been on the research side. So what is your perspective on maybe why that's happening so we can unpack that and learn and be more successful as a result? I, I think... Um... One of the biggest issues that I saw when I was in advisory and working, I worked very closely uh, with companies that were in the 40 to $100 million space and were trying to scale. And I had a co-lead, this wonderful woman, Barbie Maddie, from, who's at, was at Forrester, who would work with the mar chief marketing officer or the marketing lead, and I'd work with the sales lead, and we'd try to build their go-to-market, right? their integrated go-to-market uh, function and help them understand how their processes and stuff had to be integrated. And we knew within the first meeting, which groups would make, make it to a, you know, an integrated go-to-market function and which ones won just by the behavior of the two leaders, the sales and marketing leader. And what invariably happens is one or the other is not able to truly understand the value of the other person. Um, for example, I've seen marketers who think that they live in isolation, that I work at the top of the funnel and then I give it to you and I don't care what happens after that. Um, and my job. yeah, I've done my job. I've given you the leads and, 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 you know, but leads, leads don't matter. Revenue matters at the end of the day. And so if they're not leads that can convert, it doesn't matter. Like right. you're looking at the wrong thing. Um, so I, 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 th I see that a lot and, and the people that on the same side, I see sales leaders who think that marketing is invaluable at all. And today, one of the stats that I remember from research we had done at Forrester was that, you know, the number of interactions that buyers 
make significantly, I'm not going to quote the stats because it's not my data anymore, but significantly doubled really over the last five years, the number of interactions they have to make a purchase. And over 55% of those are digital. Right, right. And so the salesperson is only engaging out of all those interactions, four or five of 30. So, uh, you know, like a sixth of the interactions are with the salesperson. That, what that really means is that marketing is actually taking on a significant portion of the sales function at the higher levels of the purchase. That's right. Level, right. That's right. But you have to approach it as you're trying to enter into a relationship. You're not trying to get a hand raised. You're trying to say, is this, is this company person, whatever, worthy of a relationship? Not worthy of, but are they, is the time right? Do they have interest? Do they match? Are they, uh, do they align with our idea of the ideal buyer? Is their behavior indicating that they're going to purchase? Um, my brother is a really fabulous salesperson. He always says to me, I love, I love when somebody says no, because then I can go on to the next guy. Because if you're not ready and you don't want to buy, tell me quickly so I can get on, you know, with my job, right? Um, which is an interesting way to look at it. So qualify early. Qualify often, but anyway. So I think I think a lot of sales leaders don't understand the role of that and how tightly integrated that that those have to be. So we need to to provide digital cover to salespeople during the sales cycle, not just at the front of the sales cycle, but during the cycle, after the sale. You know, to, for renewal, particularly with SaaS models. You know, we have to keep them engaged and continue to share with them what they need to know and what we're doing and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a, it's not a handoff. It's not a baton race. Well, you know, to one, to that extent, there was a stat that I saw recently that salespeople spend roughly 30% of their time creating content. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because during that, that process in the sales cycle, right. There's, we're not trying to just sell the suite of products or services. We're educating, right? Mm -hmm. We're, we're advising. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. That's the yeah. way that it should work. Right. Right. So, but I've never met a salesperson that was hired for their content creation capabilities. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the things that, what's your point of view in terms of that ongoing support, right? That it's never a handoff. But it's a team, is what I'm taking for what you're saying, working together, right? What's yeah, your so, yeah, I mean, it's critically important. So when we when we build our messaging stack uh, at Edgio, um, we build our, our levels of, of messaging. You know, we have our messaging framework starting at the corporate level and going all the way down and deep. And um, when we build that messaging framework, we build it that in, independent of content. Right. So what are the key messages that the personas need to hear to, uh, con you know, go to their next step in their journey of their knowledge journey? Because it's really a knowledge journey. So what are those key pivotal knowledge learning points that say they're they're ready for more information? You can't overload them with too much information at the beginning. You have to you have to kind of pace yourself with them and teach them. You know, think of yourself as really an advisor and a, a teacher. So we, we build the messaging framework and then we build all the derivative 
content from there, whether it's website content or whether it's, you know, um, collateral for salespeople to use or whether it's enablement materials for them to use to prepare for. Um, so yeah, it's, it's critically important. Now, we do a lot of co-creation with the field, <clears throat> partly because our marketing organizations knew when I got here, we weren't, we didn't really have a marketing organization. It was kind of scattered. It wasn't a cohesive team. But also because the field knows what they need. Yeah. They're out there. They're hearing. Now, that Gong is like a, or any of these conversational intelligence tools are so great for marketers. And if they're not listening to those recordings, you know, of the salespeople in action, it's really a shame because you learn a tremendous amount, not only about the buyer and, and how the buyer's talking, but how the salesperson's crafting the story. And you can, at least I can immediately tell this is a person who really knows how to craft the story and how to have the conversation. Uh, and this is a person who's trying to sell and there's a difference. And the person who's trying to sell is kind of going from a script and let me show you the next slide and let me get into my product. Right. So yeah, we have to, as marketers, understand how conversations happen, how knowledge transfers and how we can do that both for our salespeople, but help them do that with our buyer. And that the term there, conversation, is really important. And, and you use the term relationship earlier. And listening into those conversations, marketers have the ability to say, oh, here's how I can help expand that conversation. Mm -hmm. Here's how I can, because salespeople traditionally are, are very often looking for reasons why to keep the conversation going. And not just the dialogue of the moment, right? But right. the yeah. conversation yeah. over time. Set up the next conversation. Absolutely, right? Yeah. So if you're not listening in and you're not understanding the beginning, the middle of the conversation, how are you going to help enable the end of the conversation? I think that's a very important point that you made there. That's at least my takeaway from that. Now, before we hit the record button, we were talking about this subject. You mentioned a real understanding of the buyer and how important that was. And you actually gave me a, a story of when you were actually in sales and you were going to meet um, mm -hmm. a buyer. Can you kind of just, the understanding of the importance of under, you know, understanding their needs and being in the shoes of the seller and being in front of that buyer and what the yeah. difference is versus I'm in marketing and, and here's how I'm trying to enable that. And how these teams can work together. And I and I don't mean to infer that you have to have been a salesperson to be a successful marketer. I don't mean to infer that, but it certainly helped helps me. Yeah. And and the story that you're talking about was I I was a, asked to go meet with a new pr pr prospective client. The client, uh, an executive uh, at this company, had called into our CEO's office and said, "Send somebody to see me. We want to talk to somebody there." Right. So I went off and. Uh, the prospect was ADP, big company. And um, I knew very little about what they were interested in. I, I knew nothing other than what I could glean from their website, but it's a huge conglomerate. You know, they do lots of things. So I knew the basics of their business, but I didn't know what to be prepared for. And I'm in the parking lot getting, you know, I'm there early. So I'm waiting for, to go up to the desk and, and check in. And the butterflies and the nerves, right? That the uncertainty of, am I prepared enough for this? What are what are they going to talk? Am I going to embarrass myself? Am I going to be able to carry the conversation? Am I going to be able to add value during this conversation? Because I haven't been able to 
you know, I don't have any slides. I don't, I don't have anything but my notebook and my pen. Like, you know, how, how am I going to do this? Right. Um, it was, and it worked out fine. It worked out fine. We had a fabulous conversation. And in some ways it was a conversation because all I could do was ask questions. I knew nothing. Right. But he didn't, he wasn't expecting me to know. And it was actually a room of people. It was five people. Um, and they weren't expecting me to have all the answers. They were actually wanting to sort of brainstorm about whether they should do something differently or not. And we did that and it was great. And then I was able to say, say, Hey, I think there's some things that we could, you should think about. And some of them were things we provided as a company and some were not, but um, it was a fun conversation and they ended up becoming a customer and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, that was, it was nerve wracking. And so when I, when I think about creating collateral or enablement programs, you know, training programs or anything else, I think about those nerves and, and, and what it felt like to not really know what I was facing. And, and so, so we have to not only teach them, but we have to help them practice and get confidence. It's not just about knowledge. It's about the application of knowledge in a very, you know, emotion laden setting, because you don't know what's coming at you. Even when you have a great relationship with a client, things happen. There's reorgs happen. People retire, people get let go, things happen. And so you never know how your deal is going to go and what twists and turns. And you have to, you have to be able to think on your feet. As a matter of fact, I think that's one of the most important traits of a good salesperson is the ability to connect the dots between disparate things. Two words you said in there, you said confidence, you said emotion, and there actually have been really great studies that have been done on this where over half of the buying decisions are based on emotion because what you're asking the buyers to do many times has risk, right? And they have their careers and they're making a decision. You know, the whole nobody ever got fired for buying IBM kind of a, a saying, right. right? But with every decision that they're making comes risk. And they want to know what you just described was in that meeting where you came with just a paper and notepad and pen. You just had a conversation. You were an advisor to them. You didn't have your PowerPoint slides that you were going through and you know how the product was this. In fact, that role and the that connection, that emotional connection to a buyer has been proven to be equally as important to what it is that you're selling. It's absolutely true because the the risk of a decision, a purchase decision accrues to the individuals making it, but the benefit accrues to the corporation. So there's a mismatch in the whole equation of, of buying. And the bigger the purchase, the more risk to the individual. And, and so uh, that's why buying groups are so important. That's why there's so many members of a buying group, because you want to share the risk. So people have to feel comfortable. Um, you know, you just think about any interaction you have and whether the interaction was a positive one or not. and. Uh, Steve Wynn said something really interesting. We were at a conference at one of his hotels and he was a big customer of ours. And he came to speak at our conference. Or I think it was a sales conference, but it could have been a customer conference. And um, somebody asked him and he was telling a story that's one of his um, 
uh, intern groups were graduating. They come in for the summer, you know, these graduate kids. And, and he was, and one of them asked him the question, Steve, who's the most important employee at Wynn Hotels? Hmm. And he was like, hmm. And then he came back with the next employee. Because every day, somebody, someone on the employee team is having a bad day. Every day mistakes happen. There's a billing error. There's a drop in performance on the software. Something happens, right? Every day a mistake is made. The next employee who touches that customer is the most important employee. So we never know when what we do as employees is going to be, we're going to be the most important. Is it, is it my analyst relations guy who's having a conversation with an analyst and something he says or the way he in, interacts is going to make a difference between whether we're in the magic quadrant or not, or whether, um, you know, something that um, an engineer does to fix a problem and what it's going to do for somebody else's day. We just don't know. It's it's sort of the interesting thing. People want to be able to trust the corporation as a whole. So all the people that they interact with have to be, you know, fit together in their commitment to the purpose of the company and the value they're trying to drive so that that customer feels secure in their decision. It feels less risky when they emotionally feel like they're going to be cared for, even when mistakes happen. So what you're saying is, and, and it's part of what you've even written up before, is that enabling that team and the team knowing that I can be a very, very important part of this. It might be a very simple thing that I did, I produced, I said, but it is a team effort and if everybody has that perspective, then we we all get to raise our shoulders up a little bit, feel more confident, a little more good about what we're doing. But you talked about before we started recording, enabling that team and creating that kind of a culture. Mm -hmm. Is that is that the takeaway from what you're saying right now? Yeah, I, I think when I I think about the revenue engine and and we can think about it as you know marketing, sales, and customer success as the revenue engine, the people who are on the forefront. Um, I'm now in a business that Geo um, delivers, you know, we have a network and we deliver content, uh, whether we're helping websites, you know, deliver performance faster on their website that, you know, images pop in and all that stuff, or whether we're helping a over the top sports entity broadcast hockey games, right? Whatever it is, there's technology involved. And if any of that fails or doesn't perform well, that's also, so when I think about it in our company now, it's when I think of the revenue engine, it's much broader even than just sales, marketing, and, and customer success. It has to include our performance team and our operations team, our service team, because they're part of the product. And so it in my role as, as go-to-market strategist, and, and we're trying to educate the whole company on where are we going? What is our differentiation? Who are we? Who's buying from us? Why are they buying from us? What do they, why does it matter to them? And what are the outcomes we're trying to deliver for them? And we're, we're trying to really think in terms of outcome. What outcome are we creating for our, our customer? Because it, it, because of that operational component, we have to deliver. We're not done when we sell it. We've got to deliver it every day. Right. Right. 
Yeah, so just like in Wynn's hotels, right? They've got to deliver it every day. The rooms have to be clean every day. The food has to be hot. It tastes good. And, you know, the casinos have to be fair or not or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to take a right turn for a moment here. Okay. And this was something that we had talked about before, I think, before the recording started again. And you opened up with the focus on understanding the buyers and their needs. And actually, there was a, a piece written recently by Gartner that talked about how CMOs need to play much more of a role of a chief customer officer to be successful today. What, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, so... I, I don't necessarily, um, I, I think you, people could misunderstand by saying a, a marketer has to be a chief customer officer, but certainly has to understand the entirety of the customer, yeah. not just the digital digital interactor, right? We have to understand all the conversations that are taking place between our company and, and our client company. Because the people who buy are not the people who use typically. Mm -hmm. So they may be involved ter tertiary, but but often in a in a SaaS company, you know, the users of the software are not the same people. Somebody might have sat on the buying committee to represent the user community, but once the buy is done, right? Procurement's not really involved. They might do a review to say, are we getting value out of this purchase? but they're not in the day-to-day -day of it. So if we don't understand ultimately every, all of those um, interactions are gonna happen as marketers, we cannot create the right kind of message and, the, and provide the right kind of information. I was working with a client and they were a, 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 a maintenance provider. And one of the things they never talked about was their service process. Hmm. And yet the people who are using it, we're going to really care about the service service process. But the procurement person buying it doesn't really need to know the service process. No. But you still have to articulate it because if you want the service people, the people who are going to be using the service to go to the procurement guy, no, use them, right? You have to speak right. their language. So there's influence that happens in the buying group that you have to speak to. So you have to speak to all those 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 people, and we spoke about this. You know, it's not a baton. You know, it's not marketing handing off the baton to sales. Marketing needs to be involved throughout the entire customer lifecycle, from their first interaction all the way through to their renewal and their expansion. If we want to be successful, and so we have to understand that, that that a lot of marketers don't even think about. I had a conversation with the CRO uh, last week and he said, we need to reassure our buyers that when they buy, the transition is going to be easy. The integration is going to be simple, that they've, they've got their existing, you know, integrations and teams and everybody using the technology that they're used to. And they're scared of making a move just because it's going to rock the boat, right? That's really important. Like what you're talking about here is the marketing has got to be involved in every component. If that's a major obstacle to completing the sale, then we need to address that. Right? We need to have content that 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 can be used in, in the conversation and reassurance that 
that is going to be a good transition. Uh, I've got two more questions before we wrap up here. Here's the first one. We've talked about the conversation. We've talked about the emotions. We've talked about being involved all throughout. And you talked about your message platform and then creating the content that goes and fills that. On a scale of one to 10, if you had to rate the importance of content in helping to carry and nurture and execute that conversation, that relationship that's happening, one being not important at all, doesn't affect the success of the company. 10 being that content is vital to the success of the company. Where would you rate that on the one to 10 scale? Uh, probably an eight or a nine. I think um, it's a qualified, you know, if I were to say to make it a 10, it would have to be the right content at the right time mm-hmm. for the, the particular audience. Um, and, and by content, I really mean the message and the format of the message so that it can be received properly by the person who needs to receive it. Hmm. I often talk to people about, you know, when you're at the beginning of a sales cycle, customers care about, um, does this company have any customers who had my problem? And so when you think about a case study, all they really care about is the beginning of the case study. Are there people that you've helped who look like me who have my problem? That gives me trust that you know what you're doing. It makes it a little less risky. You've got lots of examples of customers who have had my problem. Right. As they progress through their buying journey, then they care about, well, do you have customers that you solve the problem for the same way you're going to solve it for me? Right. Are Are there people who solved it the same way? And then at the end, they want to know, and what was the kind of return that I should expect? What kind of return do your, you know, and we put all those three pieces in a single case study, but when we're actually talking to the client, what they care about, the component of that piece of content that they care about is different at different stages. And you're right. If you haven't proven that you understand what their problem is and that you're, that you're good at addressing that problem, they're not going to care about hearing about the solution first. Right. That's the, you know. Plus, it feels like you're trying to tell them already, right? They haven't even figured out exactly what their problem is. They like that, Pete, that you know about this problem and you've seen it before, but they're not yet ready to have you tell them what they should buy because they haven't even framed their requirements properly yet. They're still thinking about is my problem, do I have to solve my problem? Is my problem big enough to solve now? What's going to happen if I don't solve the problem? They haven't yet thought about how they want to solve the problem. Right. They're just still analyzing the problem. Right. And so when you ask about content, my caveat about it being an aid is it's the application of the content that's even more important than the content itself. Right. And we have to teach our sellers how to use it. We have to teach our marketers when and how to use it. And and we can only do that if we really understand what's happening at every stage of that journey. You know, what you just brought up reminded me of another study that showed how B2B buyers want to consume content on our websites. And a huge percentage of them want to be able to identify the pain points, the problems. Like, so literally the navigation of where they're like, okay, Mm -hmm. oh, I get it. These are the kinds of pain points you solve. And there's rarely a site that's created 
that has front and center a pathway that literally says, these are the pain points, <laughs> right? You don't have to dig and you don't have to like look for where's the case studies. And then is this case study solving a problem that, you know, I have, it's like, how do we make it easy? That's the beginning of the conversation. I have a problem I'm looking to solve. Do you help with these kinds of things, right? Um, that's just what I was thinking as you were talking about that and the focus on that, because we don't want, they don't want solutions before they know and they're comfortable with. And at that point, they're actually still framing what their problem is in a lot of right. ways too. And that's where we can add value as a, as an organization is we, if we can help our customers frame their problem yes, and understand the scope of their problem and, and think about the, the various ways that the problem can be solved. Uh, you know, if we can do that, we're adding value in the moment. So here's the last question, Nancy. Are you <laughs> ready? <laughs> the conversation here has been about how do we help chief marketing officers that have a short tenure, half of the, the C-suite, shortest on the C-suite. And there's a lot of CMOs out there. There's a lot of um, companies that don't have a CMO where a VP of marketing is taking on that role. Mm -hmm. And a lot is on their shoulders. Out of everything we've talked about, is there something we haven't covered? Or as a takeaway, what would your overall recommendation be in terms of just yeah. one thing we want to make sure that these folks know? The biggest mistake, yeah, the biggest mistake any functional leader can make is to be in their functional silo. Mm -hmm. We have to spend the time with our peers, understanding what they're doing and having them understand what we're doing and forming and ensuring that we're aligned on our collective journey. What are we trying, what are we trying to accomplish here? And do we agree with how we want to go about accomplishing it? You know, who do we want to, you know, you think of your strike, who do we want to be? How do we want to get there? You know, what customers, what buyers, how do we, you know, how are we going to deliver value to those people? What does that value do, you know, proposition look like? And do we have everything we need to be able to deliver all that? And if not, how do we build it together? And, and, and if we don't get alignment, I mean, I spend a third of my week with my peers. Mm -hmm. And it's not me talking to them. It's us talking together about, well, you know, one of my peers in my one-on-one will say, oh, this is what I got for you. This is what I think we need. This is what I saw. This is what, and I might say, well, I've been thinking about it. And I, and I noticed this and, and, and we just work on, you know, and I, right. I'm trying to spend physically spend time together every month with at least a few of them, making sure we're working collaboratively in the same space. Um, we're completely virtual as a company. So it's important that we do that because we have to be aligned. I mean, we're, a lot of us are new. I, the company was just, mer you know, formed from a merger in July. And a lot of, I, I mean, I was taking notes of reminding myself some stuff that I want to do now, you know, like, <laughs> oh yeah, the pain point journey, the pain journey on the website, well, where do we stand on that? And, you know, I'm sure we're not there yet. I know we're not there yet. So we, you know, we're just getting our feet um, underneath us, but it's uh, important if we're not aligned. As a matter of fact, I, I, I think the statistic was you can drive a 27% greater return if you have alignment on your executive level across your functional leaders. So my advice would be, you know, 
find a way to collaborate with your peers, your customer success, you know, whoever's in charge of customer experience, whoever's in charge of sales. And all the way, we do an interlock meeting every month between my marketing team and the sales leader, you know, sales manager team saying what's coming, what are we working on? What would they prioritize? What would they change? It's just trying to stay aligned. It's so important because in so many organizations that I've worked within marketing or consulted with marketing, it's almost like we can't bother the sales team. They're really busy, right? And it's like what, what that's really saying is we shouldn't be talking. We shouldn't be having that dialogue. We shouldn't be constantly working together on what it is that they need and what are the pain points they're addressing and what are the objections that they're getting and how do we help craft this conversation that they want to have. Um, and that's, that's what you're saying is we've got to be aligned. If you're not talking with your internal teams on a regular basis and they don't even know why they need to have that conversation with you, that's a big problem to start with right there. It, you know, it's interesting. I, I I brought it up before. Conversational intelligence tools are the best gift to marketing because we don't have to ask sales about what they're experiencing. We can listen to it and, and learn from it directly. And then um, there's just no substitute for that. Yeah. That's a put you right in the middle of the conversation to understand it. Yeah. Well, Nancy, thank you very much. Pleasure to meet you. Yes, just a, a, a wealth of information and knowledge. And if anybody here wanted to reach out and talk to you, is LinkedIn a best place to do that? Yeah. You can provide yeah. a link there. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. LinkedIn, Nancy Maluso. And we'll LinkedIn, put a link into all I think all the I'm the only right one. So, <laughs> okay. in the universe. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming on. And uh, we'll look forward to having another conversation again in the future. I look forward to it. Thanks, Steve.